interesting to think about what the original readers would have been thinking as they first heard about this story, perhaps had it read for them after Moses wrote it there on the other side of the um, the Jordan River there um, just before crossing into Jericho. And uh, certainly everyone, if not mo- uh, most if not every one of the original readers would have known about God's deliverance uh, in, in Israel, or, or from Egypt that is, that is the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptians. They would have known about that, Moses' readers. But perhaps what they didn't know was how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place. And the answer to that question comes in this passage tonight, chapter 37, verses 12 through 26. And this passage focuses on Joseph's brothers and on their mistreatment of him. And um, we don't hear a lot about Joseph and his sufferings, his concerns, his, his feelings. The focus tends to be more on Joseph's brothers. But the great news is that God is in control of it all and was merciful throughout it all, accomplishing His purpose even through His brothers who had not the best of intentions. Let me read our passage for us tonight and we'll see what God has for us. Genesis chapter 37, verse 12. This is the Word of God. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. And then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And then the man said, They have moved from here, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Now let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. 
And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it, it is your son's tunic or not. And then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. And then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. The theme of this passage is there at the top of your handout. Even when it feels like he is far away, God is mercifully and sovereignly orchestrating all the events of life for his good purposes. Do you believe that? Sometimes it does feel like God is far away. We see this in verses 12 through 35 that there's not a, there's not any mention of God in this passage. There's no mention of, of of God being there with Joseph, comforting him. And so it feels as if God is far away, and I think that's the point of this writing. And it feels like God is far away. Joseph first in verses twelve through seventeen is sent to check on his brothers. Apparently Joseph's brothers were finding better grazing fields for the flocks of their father. And they had already been in Shechem. Remember, that was where uh, Dinah was raped by this man named Shechem, the prince of the land. And then two of Dinah's brothers slaughtered all the males there in in the town. So they would have known about Shechem and, and about its fields. And so they likely headed back that way. That's at least what they told Jacob. Apparently what happens though from the text, we find out that when Jacob arrives at Shechem, they're not there because he runs into some people and say. Well, we saw them here, but they didn't stay here. They ended up moving up to Dothan. And so Jacob is sent to check on his brothers and his father's flocks. You see that in verse 14. Jacob says to Joseph, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. Now, at this point in the story, we begin to get the sense that Joseph is alone. Once he sets out on this trip, on this endeavor for his father, he's alone. He's no longer under his father's care. He's not near the protection of his father. And this is going to be this is going to turn out to be a dangerous trip. Look up to verse four and I'll show you why. His brothers saw that their father loved him that is Joseph, more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Joseph, in a sense, was destined for disaster because now he's out from underneath the protection of his father and he's, he's going to be out in the field 
with his brothers. And so he travels from Hebron, which is where his father was, to Shechem, about 50 miles, at least three days on foot, perhaps more. And he arrives there and he doesn't find his brothers. And so he travels on even further. And I think the point of this, verses 15 to 17, is to show how alone he really is. I mean, why give us all this detail? Why would Moses give us this detail? A man found him, verse 15. And behold, he was wandering in the field. The man asked him, what are you looking for? Verse 16, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing their flock. And then the man said, they have moved from here. And I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Okay, so now, not only is he away from his home, but he's away from where his father would have known him to be. He's moving another 15 miles north to Dothan. So Joseph is alienated, in a sense, from his father. But what we do know, even though the text doesn't explicitly say it, is that God is watching over him and that God is orchestrating all the events of Joseph's life, including this trip to see his brothers. After Joseph is sent to check on his brothers and he finally comes up to where they are staying in verses 18 through 24. His brothers see him from a distance. Imagine the scene here. Hey, the brothers are perhaps sitting in the shade, watching over the flocks, making sure that that they're not uh, they, there's no um, animals coming to take them or or anyone coming to steal them. And then one of them spots over the horizon this multicolored coat. I mean, where else could we have seen one of those before? That must be Joseph coming. And verses 19 and 20 says, he's he's probably coming to tell us one of his dreams. Look at verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. and Here's their plan. Now then, come and let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Remember last time we saw that that they became envious of him because he was chosen in this dream to to rule over them. And they may have seen him as maybe boasting a little bit. Like, you're telling us these dreams. Stop telling us these dreams that we're going to bow down to you. Even his father was a little bit uh, frustrated and concerned at first. I mean, when he talked to us before, he suggested that we were going to bow down to him, so he's probably coming to tell us about another one of his dreams. Let's kill him, and then we'll see what really happens to this dreamer. Let's see if his dreams come true. Like, we're supposed to bow down to him at some point, but we, we're not going to do that if he's dead, right? So we'll thwart that plan. But Reuben doesn't allow it. Verses 21 and 22, he says, You will not kill him. Verse 22, shed no blood. Now, Reuben actually had, uh, seems to be a, uh, a positive character in this story. And we don't know exactly what his motivation was. Perhaps he was motivated by trying to regain his father's favor. Remember, uh, Reuben had an immoral affair with his father's wife, his father's concubine. And... Uh, so he fell out of favor with his father. So maybe he's trying to regain his father's favor. Or it could have been he didn't want to fall out of more favor. That is, into further disfavor with his father. And I'm going to be responsible. If 
I'm out there with all my brothers, Joseph comes out to us and gets killed somehow, he's going to leave me responsible and I don't want to fall into further disfavor. So we're not exactly clear what exactly his motivation is. But we do know that Reuben did not want to see Joseph die and he planned to rescue him. Notice verse 22. He says in the middle of the verse, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. Now, what were his intentions in throwing me in the pit? So that he would be left there to die? So that he could be sold to someone else? No, look at the end of the verse. That he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Reuben knew that he would be held responsible and so he makes a plan. Throw him into the pit. And then when his brothers disperse, he'll go rescue him and send him on home to his safety. Look at verse 29. We see further that uh, Reuben was indeed against Joseph being killed. See, after they had sold him into slavery, verse 29, now Reuben returned to the pit expecting to find him there. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And so he, in this act of mourning, tore his garments. In verse 30, he returned to his brothers and said, the boy's not there. As for me, where will I go? How can I possibly go back to my father now? He's going to kill me. He knew there would be consequences. And instead, the brothers sell him into slavery while Reuben is away. In verses 23 and 24, they throw him into the pit after taking his coat. And perhaps they were just waiting. Let's see, how, how are we going to kill him? Okay, Reuben told us to put him in there, but maybe when Reuben's away, we can kill him. But then they come up with a plan. In verses 25 to 28, when they see this caravan of Ishmaelites or Midianites coming from Gilead, headed down to Egypt, and they're selling all these sorts of goods, and Judah has a plan. You know what? We're not going to go and get anything for his blood being shed, but we could actually make some money on this man, on this, on this brother of ours, if we sell him. And notice the motivation supposedly that Judah gives in verse 27. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. As if Judah all of a sudden has a conscience. We can't do this to our own flesh and blood, my brother, your brother, can we? So let's sell him. Uh, we don't know, again, fully Judah's motivation. He may have been doing to try to protect Joseph from being killed like Reuben was. But more likely, he was doing it for the money. Whatever the case, Judah does later repent, and he feels bad for it. Turn to uh, chapter 44 with me, because this is very interesting how when Joseph discovers that his brothers come back to receive uh, some food and be sent back to, to Israel, Joseph discovers it, and then he plays this game with his brothers. And, and there's several chapters where Judah... Uh, he, he kind of uh, puts things in their sacks, you remember? So that they get discovered. And uh, and even when Benjamin comes back, 
Remember, they didn't want to bring Benjamin back because they knew that was their, the other son that their father loved. And we can't bring Benjamin back. He's not going to let us. And, uh, of course, Jacob convinces him, or I'm sorry, Joseph convinces him, that the brothers, to do that. They bring Benjamin back and they have a good meeting and they're sent back to their father with all this, this, this sacks full of food. And what does Jacob put in Benjamin's sack? A silver cup or something, right? I'm sorry, Joseph puts in, thank you, Joseph puts into Benjamin's sack so that he gets found out. And so these guards come and say, wait, what are you guys doing stealing from us? Oh, we didn't steal anything. And, and uh, they start ripping open all the sacks and, and then finally Benjamin and there's the silver cup. You know what Judah does here in verse 18? Chapter 44, Judah pleads that Joseph not keep Benjamin or do anything to Benjamin. You have to allow Benjamin to go back. And this suggests to us that Judah was actually he was actually concerned about Benjamin. And this is what Joseph was trying to figure out. Are my brothers concerned about Benjamin like they are, were concerned about me before? They just dispose of him when he gets into trouble? And that's what this whole passage is about. Verse 18, Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asks his servant saying, Have you a father and a brother? We said, My Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. And so he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I might set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we can't go down if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we can't see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, that is, Joseph, and he dies. And I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. And thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? See what Judah is doing here? He's given himself in exchange. Do whatever to me you are going to do to Benjamin. Keep me. I want to be to re, I want to replace Benjamin. You have to allow Benjamin to go back, and this is what Joseph is trying to figure out. Do you even care about Benjamin? Have you repented in any way? And apparently Judah had repented of this sin that he had committed against Joseph years earlier. So turn back to chapter 37. Now we see 
that Joseph is sold to the Midianite traders. Now, these phrases Midianites and Ishmaelites are used interchangeably. Um, don't be confused by that. The Ishmaelites were sons of Abraham and the Midianites were sons of Abraham. Abraham had a wife named Keturah later on in his life and she had a son named Midian. And actually what happens is the Ishmaelites actually become intermarried with the, um, the Ishmaelites intermarry with the Midianites. And so they really become kind of one people. And so that's why you see uh, towards the beginning of this uh, event, Ishmaelites, verse 27, and then in verse 28, Midianites. Okay, it's not a different really group of people. They're kind of combined there. Joseph sold into slavery. And then, verses 31 through 35, he's treated as though he were dead. He's treated as though he were dead. And the reason uh, I say that is because the text shows that they take his, his tunic back, torn and bloody, back to their father, and they don't lie to their father. They don't say Joseph was killed by a wild animal. They simply show him the coat. And Jacob figures it out for himself. Surely my son has been torn to pieces. And so they deceive him. And that's why I say the deceiver is deceived. Isn't it interesting that Jacob used the blood of goats to, or, or the skin of goats to deceive his father into thinking that he was Esau in order to get the blessing. And now Jacob is being deceived by the blood of a goat. If you want to live a life of pain and grief, and if you want to see other people around you do the same, then you will deceive others often. And you will be deceived often. I think that's what's going on here with Jacob. He, he is a deceiver, and he ends up hanging out with a lot of people who deceive him. And um, I think that's in keeping with the principle from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that says that we reap what we sow. If we sow deception, we should not be surprised when we reap deception. Jacob's response is similar to Reuben's. It is grief. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. His children try to comfort him in verse 35, but he says, no, I'm going to go all the way to Sheol in grief. Normally it would be several days when a person would mourn the loss of a family member, but Jacob's saying, you'll never be able to comfort me. All the way until the time where I meet him in the place of the dead, I will not be comforted. So it feels for Jacob and certainly for Joseph that God is far away. Where is God in all of this? Why did God not prevent this from happening? But what we should recognize from this passage, and it's something that we need to see, is that God mercifully and sovereignly orchestrated all the events of Joseph's life life for His good purposes. First, God mercifully orchestrated the events of Joseph's life for His purposes. Verses 20-22. to Joseph could have been killed, but God protected him with Reuben. Reuben said, you're not killing him. You're not allowed to shed any of his blood. Throw him in a pit. 
And then when you're gone, I'm going to go save him. I'm going to, I'm going to rescue him and send him back home safely. So God protects him mercifully from death. And we see God's mercy and how Joseph would actually save his own brothers from starvation when the famine would come. In verse 36, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And of course, we know how this story turns out. But this would be, this would be a stop along the way for Joseph to move to second in command in all of Egypt. And that it was actually what God would use to save his own family. Secondly, God sovereignly orchestrated the events of Joseph's life for his purpose. Purposes. God sovereignly did it. That is, He was in control. It, God was behind it all. He was behind it all. We could even say that God was behind the hatred of Joseph's brothers. Now let me be clear. God did not cause their hatred. God did not approve of their hatred and their desire to kill Joseph. But God was behind it in the sense that He used it to accomplish what He wanted, which was to get Joseph to Egypt. Who was it that chose Joseph to be the one who would rule over his brothers? Who was it that that gave Joseph the dream that said that he would have his brothers bow down to him? Who was that? Did Joseph just come up with that on his own? Hey, remember, when we talked about this last time, I said that that was actually a revelation from God, different from the dreams that we receive today. Okay? It was divine revelation. God speaking through, to Joseph through a dream, much like He did to Jacob. And He's saying to Joseph, you are the chosen one to rule over your brothers. And that's why I say God was behind the hatred of His brothers. If, Joseph, if God hadn't chosen Joseph and given him the dream and let him know that he was going to be the ruler, his brothers likely wouldn't have hated him. You see, God has the power to limit sin. Uh, the first blank there, by the way. God was behind the hatred of Joseph's brothers. And then letter A, God has the power to limit their sin. God had the power to limit their sin. He could have stopped it. Uh, he, he could have reduced it. He could have uh, put them on a leash. Say, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can go this far, but you can't go all the way. We know this from this passage because God protected Joseph from their original intention, which was to kill him. We also know it from Job chapter 1 when Satan comes to God and says, I've been roaming around on the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, of course, you you." He's going to serve you. You give Him so many things. Who's not going to serve you? He loves you because of the things that you give Him. And and God says, no, He doesn't. Take away everything that He has, but you can't touch His body. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Satan comes back. Well, he's got his health. Everybody who has their health is going to serve you. And God says, no, you can take away His health, but you can't take His life. You see, God can limit sin. He he only allows sin to go to a certain point. And in fact, God could have prevented their sin altogether. God could have prevented 
their sin. Chapter 20, verse 6 is the story of uh, Abraham when he goes to Abimelech and says, this is my sister. Remember with Sarah. And how does God stop Abimelech from doing anything to Sarah? Do you remember? He, he, right. And he comes to Abimelech in a dream. He says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this and I've also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, first it was, it was a, a, a material thing that they recognized, a physical thing they recognized that something was wrong, but God actually came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you need to stop. I'm not going to allow you to touch. So God not only can limit sin, keep it from going all the way to where it desires to go, but He can prevent it altogether. He can prevent it altogether. But instead, here, God is behind the sin because He's actually allowing the sin to happen because He wants Joseph in Egypt in order to save Israel. He's going to use their sin to send Joseph ahead of them. Turn to chapter 45, verse 8. Joseph recognizes this. Chapter 45, verse 8. When his brothers are sorrowful that they had sent him into slavery, Joseph responds in verse 8 by saying, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hey, don't, don't beat yourselves up, gentlemen. It wasn't you who sent me here. God used your sin to accomplish what He wanted to do. God was in complete control. And so, number two on your outline on the back is God sent Joseph into slavery. God sent Joseph into slavery. In verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal, planning to kill him. He's in a pit. And they raised their eyes and looked, and behold, what a coincidence. What a stroke of luck for Joseph, right? Just happened to be a caravan passing by of slave traders. Coincidence? Luck? How about God orchestrating the events of, God, uh, of Joseph's life and his brother's life to make sure that Joseph was protected and sent on to Egypt. God even uses the wicked acts of men to accomplish His purposes. Let me leave you with three main points of application tonight. Number one, God is merciful and sovereign in all of your circumstances. God is merciful and sovereign in all of your circumstances. It wasn't that God simply used the sins of Joseph's brothers to accomplish His purposes. But I would rather put it this way. God planned the sins of Joseph's brothers to accomplish His purposes. God planned them. He was behind them in the sense that He allowed them. He knew that they were going to happen because He planned them. Now, he doesn't take culpability for them. The way I, I, I understand it to work is that people, when left to themselves, will do the worst kinds of sins. And so all God has to do is actually a passive, almost a passive activity. Remove His hand of grace from them and they move on into deeper and deeper sin. 
And so God's not actually being a little, uh, you know, you know, making them a puppet, his puppet. There's kind of, here, you do this sin, as if he's the author or the controller of their sin. But rather, he simply removes his hand of grace, his hand of common grace, and they move on into the sin that they want to do. And that's why I say he planned it. How do you view God? Do you view God as reeling up in heaven, wringing His hands when something goes awry? Oh boy, what am I going to do next? Do you view God as a responder to problems? Oh, there's another problem over there. I have to go run and deal with that. Does He know what's going to happen? Or is God simply just a really good chess player, as some theologians have suggested? It's not that He knows what's going to happen or that He's planned what's going to happen. He's just, he's just really smart. He's played so many games that He's got a hundred moves ahead of Satan and so He knows where to go next. Is that what God is doing up in heaven? Is He just predicting what is going to happen or does He know it? What I'm telling you from, from the authority of the Scriptures that God, Job chapter 38, verse 4, is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. God is in control of all things over all circumstances, even the wicked acts of men. And so that means, because God is sovereign, we may not understand His merciful and sovereign ways. There may be times There may be many times in our lives where we don't understand what God is doing. Is there something in your life going on right now which you can't give an account? It seems like it doesn't fit into what God would be doing. It seems like it's of the devil. It seems like God doesn't know about this one thing. Maybe it's a a genuine physical or emotional pain. Maybe it's an unrealized dream or a conflict in your relationships. Is God there? Does He even care about what's going on or does He have too many other things on His plate? Is God so high and lifted up that He doesn't care or have time to care for your pain? There are few more perplexing stories in the Scriptures than the persecutions that come upon righteous Job. Especially from his perspective. You see, we have the revelation to know what happened in heaven, but Job never did. There is no indication that Job ever knew that God had a conversation with Satan, even at the end. He didn't know. How perplexing must that have been for Job? Shocking, really. He's receiving all this persecution... And it seems like God is not there. In fact, for the first 30-some chapters, God doesn't even speak. And so we're, we're standing out here left to wonder, where is He? And believer, this is the real Christian life. This is the Christian life. Dealing with perplexing situations and sometimes feeling like God is far away. But we need to come to terms with the Scripture. We need to recognize that the Christian life is not all puppy dogs and popsicles. 
It's often filled with genuine hurt, deep pain, distress, frustration, setbacks, and loneliness. So we should be realistic about our trials, but not pessimistic. Do you understand the difference? Realistic, realizing that that, those could happen to me. But not pessimistic in the sense that everything's spiraling spiraling out of control and God doesn't care. Not pessimistic in that sense. But even in my darkest times in life, God cares. And God is in control. And God is using these things to accomplish what He wants. And that as we know from the prophets, from the book of Revelation, that God will ultimately win. In fact, He's already won through the cross. And it's only a matter of time before we realize that victory. You may think that the persecution in your life is an obstacle to God accomplishing His purpose, but as we see with Joseph, and many times in our own life, Persecution is actually often the conduit by which God accomplishes His purpose. We think, get this persecution out of the way so I can get back on to doing God's desires. And God's saying, no, leave it in the way. Go through it. Because this is how I'm bringing you to where I want you to go. Joseph's brothers tried to stop God's plans, but they actually became the agents of God's plans. And if we're going to be believers who think about our persecutions rightly, we need to think about them in terms of God and His sovereign control and His merciful nature. Let me just have you write down a passage 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4 8 through 18. This is where Paul is saying these are momentary light afflictions. Paul, how could you possibly say that? I mean, you were beaten. You were left for dead. You starved. You were shipwrecked. And you're telling me that these are momentary light afflictions and here's what he's saying. In comparison to the eternal weight of glory that I will receive, they are momentary and they are light. You see, he had the proper perspective of his sufferings. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. Perhaps one of the best passages on God's sovereignty, his sovereign control. We know that God was behind the persecution of Joseph because Joseph recognizes at the end of his life, God sent me here before you to preserve your life. You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good. And what we should learn here is that no matter what kind of trial comes our way, if you've trusted in Christ, you can be sure that God has good in store for you. Not that your trial will be good. He's not saying everything will work out to be or work out as good. That hey, this is fun. But it will work out for good. Look at chapter eight, verse twenty-eight. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, we often look at this verse and interpret good in a selfish, materialistic way, but we must understand the context in which it was written. In verses 22 and 23, Paul's talking about the groaning of creation, suffering the pains of childbirth, the death and decay. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution? Those don't sound like a lot of good things. So Paul's talking about death, decay, corruption, persecution. And he's saying here in verse 28, all of those things are working together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. How could we possibly trust that? How could we possibly believe that our circumstances are working out for good? And Paul has the answer in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? I love this verse, verse 32. If you ever question God's love for you in the middle of trials, go to Romans 8.32. And see God's greatest display of love. You may not feel loved when you're going through that trial. You may feel as if God is far away. But here's how you can see God is near. Romans 8.32 If God did not give up His greatest possession in Jesus Christ, spare His own Son for you, then how will He not also with Him freely give you all things. You don't think God is on your side? Verse 31. He is on your side. Do you believe that? Can you say that to yourself? God is on my side. God is for me, and if God is for me, then no one can be against me. When it gets to the point in your life when it feels like you have been abandoned by God, you need to reflect on the cross. And recognize that the worst abandonment that you could have received was already taken and put on the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was already abandoned for you so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus was on the cross and He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. And so that you can stand up in trials. And recognize that God is for you. And that all that is happening in your life is for your good and for God's glory. All of it. You may not have all the answers to the specific questions. You may not understand why you have to go through this when all these other people don't. But the Scriptures are clear that God is for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that He will never abandon them. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. 
In times of trial, consider that God's made the good days just as well as the others, and He's done it for His good purposes. We may not understand God's merciful and sovereign way, but thirdly, that's okay. Our responsibility is to trust God, to do His work even when we don't understand. What we're not going to see with regard to Joseph and his life is him slumping into some sort of self-pity, falling out of trust with God. No, he trusts God, believes His promises, believes that God will allow him to rule over his brothers in a good way. And that, frankly, is the nature of life. It's full of inconsistencies, isn't it? Job was perplexed by them. Why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? The psalmist was perplexed by them. Psalm 73. What I would encourage you to do is when you see the inconsistencies in life, guard your heart against a victim's mentality. The idea that everyone is out to get you, including God. We are not a victim of our past. We're not a victim of our present. We're not a victim of our circumstances, our childhood, our physical conditions, our past sins, our relationships. You know, I can't really help it. I have to sin this way because of fill in the blank. Don't take on that mentality. We sin because we want to sin. And the life of Joseph teaches us that there's always a right way to respond, no matter how severe the trials, no matter how much mistreatment we have received. Joseph could have said, you know what? I'm a victim of, of my brother's mistreatment of me, and so I'm going to go into despair and hatred and bitterness, and I have every right to do it. But instead, he trusts God. And here's the charge for us tonight. Our responsibility is to trust God that He is at work even in the inconsistencies. And that means that we have to obey Him and follow His desires. We may never get the answers to all of our questions. Why did this person have to die? Why did I have to go through this trial and this relationship? Why did I have to have this physical ailment? Why did I have to be plagued with so much financial trouble? And we may not get the answers to all those. But we can rest in the fact that God is God. And our responsibility is to submit to Him and His desires even when it doesn't make complete sense. God is in complete control even of every sin that is going on around you and in you. God is a good God. He has good intentions for you. And He's using every single aspect of your life and the lives of the people around you to accomplish what He wants, which is a good thing. If we ever question whether He loves us or not, we simply go back to the cross. Because even the most agonizing of suffering that we will ever face has already been faced by Jesus Christ. So we really don't have a lot to fear. If God is for us, who is against us? God is working on your behalf. God is for you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for Your sovereignty and Your power in our lives. And we pray that You'd help us to be able to see You even in the darkest of times. May the light of Your truth shine ever so brightly, especially in those times when we're walking through difficulty. Lord, help us to be prepared for when those times comes. When those times come, we often wait until those trials come to start thinking rightly or trying to think rightly about You, but I pray that You would prepare us even now so that when the trials come, we're not surprised by them, we're not distressed by them, we're not dispirited, ready to give up, because we recognize that You are in control of them all. Help us to walk after You and to trust You even when we don't fully understand because You are God and we are finite creatures. We love to be in control of our own lives, but but that actually can be harmful at times. So we ask for You to help us to be dependent people and that we would work together to encourage one another in times of trial and in times of joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.